Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.26, The Boycott. Much was happening in the American colonies as October gave way to November 1774. The Continental Congress had just concluded its work, laying plans for a program of complete non-importation to begin on December 1st. Meanwhile, up in Massachusetts, imperial rule was collapsing as county-by-county local governments began to take over. This week, we are going to move our story forward and see just how the colonists are going to react to news of the impending boycott, while at the same time, how violent actions continue pushing events to even more dangerous places. Last time, we discussed, as Thomas Gage would declare it, the end of civil government in Massachusetts. However, the Bay Colony was far from the only place that was seeing such convulsions. Even as the Continental Congress was wrapping up its business in Philadelphia, an incident in Annapolis showed the very real anger that existed throughout all of the colonies. It was not something that had become exclusive to Massachusetts. The Peggy Stewart was a ship owned primarily by Anthony Stewart and his father-in-law. The ship had rushed back from Britain, trying to sneak in before the deadline of November 1st, when imports would officially be banned in Maryland. The ship carried a bunch of things, including a number of indentured servants. But most importantly for our story is the 2,000 pounds of East India Company tea aboard the ship. When the ship came into port, customs officials demanded that Stewart pay the duty. Now, unfortunately for Stuart, he had not personally been trying to bring the tea in. In fact, it does not appear that anybody on board the ship was aware of the presence of the East India Company tea. As it would turn out, the tea had been put on for the firm of Williams and Company, which had placed their order back in May, thinking that all of this would have just blown over by this point. Of course, it certainly had not blown over. And now Anthony Stewart was stuck with a ship, carrying the much-hated tea. Upon arrival, everybody quickly agreed that the tea could not land. Stewart and the Williams Company both agreed upon that. However, when Stewart attempted to pay for all the other cargo, except for the tea, the customs officer rejected him. It was going to be all or nothing. Stewart gave in and paid the duty. This set off a firestorm throughout Annapolis. Two options presented themselves over what to do with Stewart and his tea. One camp, led by Charles Carroll, wanted to have Stewart issue a public apology for his actions, bring the tea on shore, and publicly burn it. Charles Carroll, it should be noted, would be a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Far, far more importantly, however, He was the last surviving signer of the Declaration, dying in 1832. Now, as the last survivor, he was also aware of the huge Templar treasure that the founders were hiding, and subsequently shared the information with the Gates family, letting them know that a map was concealed on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Anyway, the other camp that formed was represented by Mathis Hammond who had more interest in retribution than did Carol. Hammond's contingent wanted to see the Peggy Stewart burned, 
along with the tea. Despite Carol's plan, carrying the majority of the support from inside the local committee of correspondence, the group wanting to burn the piggy Stewart was significantly louder about their wishes. This group let Stewart know that he had one of two choices. Either they could burn his ship, or they could burn his house, with his pregnant wife inside of it. Stewart read the room and personally set his ship on fire before giving a public apology for his actions. The burning of the piggy Stewart was of serious concern. Among the leadership, there remained a deep hatred for mob action. However, there were plenty of Americans who supported the burning of the ship, and the uprisings would help get the attention of those back in London, who had been the ones to pass the much-hated laws in the first place. For those who knew about the vote that had sided with Carroll against the destruction of the ship, the incident was even more concerning. The local committee had lost control over the situation, something which created a significant amount of worry, as it brought into question the committee's ability to dictate the events. It was the population that had decided to burn the ship, effectively overriding the committee. It stood as a stark reminder of the power that the lower classes held, and came at the great concern of the leadership, who feared their ability to control what they viewed as the mobs. Reactions to the news coming out of Philadelphia were, generally, met with a positive reception. The Massachusetts delegates, as they made their way back north, were treated as celebrities, with everybody anxious to wine and dine them. Though Adams and the rest of the delegation did what they could to dodge these parties and get back home, we get the sense that the Congress enjoyed immediate support. However, these feelings were not completely universal. John Adams noted that as they passed through New York, even as everybody else wanted to celebrate the Massachusetts delegation, he was dismayed at the amount of loyalists and those choosing neutrality. New York was indeed a colony that found itself deeply divided in what direction it was going to head. Throughout the Congress, New York had proven their desire to move towards more moderate solutions. Many in the city took the time to write back across the Lord Dartmouth and express their distaste for the boycott. However, not wanting to be politically isolated from their neighbors, they were forced to begrudgingly comply with Congress's dictates. Critically, however, New York would become one of the leading Loyalist hotspots in short order. This is not to say that the city lacked a large number of more radical citizens either, just that it seems that there were a lot of Loyalists hanging out in New York. The result was a war of words, primarily in pamphlet form, being launched between the two groups. Many of these words were denouncing the recently concluded Congress for its extremism. Multiple publishers picked up the mantle, and New York quickly found itself becoming the home base for Loyalist publications. Among those who would find themselves involved in this war of words was a young student from St. Croix, who was studying at King's, later Columbia College. Writing in opposition to a local Anglican priest, Alexander Hamilton found himself, despite being a relatively recent arrival in North America, falling onto the side of the New York Sons of Liberty. Born sometime between 1755 and 1757, the now-orphaned Hamilton had arrived in Boston in 1772. Through this battle of words, he would quickly establish himself as a talented writer, 
something that would become a trademark of his moving forward. I believe it needless to say that we are going to be spending a significant amount of time with Alexander Hamilton. Elsewhere, news of Congress's boycott was met with a positive reaction. Though much as in New York, it was not universal. Joseph Galloway, for instance, became one of the most vocal critics of the Congress's actions. Galloway had been deeply dismayed during the Congress by what he viewed as a clear movement and desire towards independence. Although he was in agreement that the relationship did need some work, Galloway was never interested in a break with the mother country. We will see Galloway, who had been a longtime friend of Benjamin Franklin, begin moving decidedly in a direction of joining what would become the Loyalist camp. More than just debates over the decisions of the Congress, there remained another question about what the delegates and the Americans as a whole actually wanted. There was, among some, at least some hope that Parliament would cave as a result of the boycott. The colonies had plenty of evidence that the boycott would work because such actions had proven successful before. We only need to look back to the Stamp Act for that. However, despite everybody saying the right words, and talking about their hopes that there would be a restoration of the peace, it was far less clear just how much people really expected success and if they even really wanted it. Although the purpose of the Congress was ostensibly peace, there were a lot of signs out there that everybody was gearing up for a looming war, and that this was, in fact, the desired outcome. Shortly after returning home to Virginia following the Congress, George Washington immediately began taking up questions of military matters. Washington found himself leading the local Fairfax County Volunteer Militia, which, through the winter of 1775, would begin drills preparing for a potential conflict. Although Washington seems to have been a bit more hesitant to sign on as to the inevitability of war than some of his colleagues in Philadelphia, he did not seem to believe that a normalization of relations was likely to take place either. Through the winter of 1775, Washington appears to have believed that ultimately London was going to back down to American demands. It was not until the spring of 1775 that Washington himself would move into that camp of believing that war was unavoidable. Fairfax County was not alone in preparing the militia. All throughout Virginia, following the Continental Congress, there was a very marked increase in militia activity. Despite his attempts to interfere with the government's proceedings, something that we are going to talk about momentarily, Governor Dunmore found himself completely incapable of stopping the hoarding of weapons and powder. Voluntary militias became very commonplace as men spent the winter engaged in regular drills. As local militia activity rapidly expanded following the First Continental Congress, other signs existed to further suggest that Many people throughout the colonies were now taking steps to plan for a war that they believed could not be avoided. All throughout the remainder of 1774 and into 1775, the colonies were busy placing orders for all kinds of weapons and gunpowder. King George III issued a decree on October 11th, while the Philadelphia Congress was still going on, halting the exportation of arms for at least the next six months 
in an attempt to stop the flow of weapons heading into America. When the Americans learned of the king's proclamation in December, they were not amused. Well, George III had clearly meant to stop weapons from pouring into the colonies, weapons that were increasingly looking like they might be used against British troops. The order managed to do little more than convince everybody in America that a confrontation was imminent. Making matters so, so much worse was an order from Lord Dartmouth that came along with the King's order to do whatever was necessary to seize weapons being brought into the colonies. Few things convinced the colonists more that the British had designs on attacking them than a concerted effort to seize weapons. The effect of this is that throughout the colonies, people went out of their way to ensure that those weapons that were landing were immediately brought under the control of the Americans. More than that, however, with the direction of the wind clearly indicating a coming war, it started a rush on both sides to gain control over as many weapons in the colonies as possible. A weapon in the hands of the other side, regardless of what side it was, was probably going to be used against you. Therefore, you had better get control over as much as you can, as fast as you can. In Rhode Island, a crisis emerged over the colony's attempts to get control over cannons that were being held in Newport at Fort George. The colonists managed to make off with 44 cannons before a British man-of-war arrived to secure the fort. The situation in Rhode Island very nearly became a catastrophe that could have plunged the colonies into war months before Lexington and Concord. The militia companies that worked on seizing the cannons from Fort George made no efforts to conceal their actions. These were not stealth missions, taking place under the cloak of darkness. The seizure of the cannons happened in broad daylight. The British did not stand idly by either, with the British regulars manning the fort, opening fire on the Americans. As nobody was hit, Little more came from this than the first encounter of fire between the two sides. However, it illustrates just how high tensions had become. Even now, after shots had been exchanged from the two sides, the Rhode Island colonists showed little interest in backing down, and just days later, were right back at it, trying to secure more cannons. Among those participating this time were John Sullivan and Nathaniel Folsom. Just months before, these two men had been in Philadelphia as delegates to the Continental Congress. Now, they were leaders in attempting to seize weapons. In our discussion over the intentions of the delegates to the Congress, and their hopes that the boycott would result in a normalization of relations and a restoration of the peace, it is very difficult to ignore that two months after the end of the Congress, two of its delegates were actively involved in the seizure of cannons from a British fort. Meanwhile, in Connecticut, the man-of-war that had traveled to Newport, named the Rose, had left from its position in New London. Conveniently for the colonists in New London, the absence of said man-of-war left the fort in that town unguarded and allowed those colonists to slip out with the cannons. These actions by the colonists to begin hoarding weapons and munitions are not limited to the events that I've just mentioned either. This is something going on all throughout the colonies, 
as they all seemingly could sense the direction that things were heading. While there did remain hope from many that Parliament would back down to the American demands, it was very obvious that by the end of 1774, nobody was really holding their breath. The King's most recent order, as well as that letter from Dartmouth, was evidence enough that the British were planning for a fight, a fight that the Americans were now actively preparing for. Although the order from George III was meant to stop the flow of weapons into the colonies, they ultimately proved to be ineffective. The problem was, the Americans were not just ordering weapons from Great Britain alone, but had reached out to the other European countries, who proved happy enough to sell the weapons and supplies that the Americans needed. Something which annoyed the British to no end. The British attempted to get control over the coastlines of America. However, it was always going to be an impossible task. It was a large coast with a whole lot of places to land. The British also appealed to the Dutch, who were very busy acting as arms dealers, to cease their weapons trades to the Americas. However, the value associated with the pre-war profiteering was simply too good for the Dutch to pass up. We can clearly see, therefore, that even following the Congress, military preparations did not simply continue, but significantly increased. All throughout the colonies, militia companies were drilling with regularity as weapons continued to pour into the colonies. These were not mere precautions either, a backup plan should the boycott fail. Indeed, in the final months of 1774, more and more counties throughout the colonies, not just in New England, were beginning to enter a state of de facto independence. This drives the question that we keep returning to today, of just how much the colonists were really hoping that the boycott would prove successful. One of the consequences of how the decisions of the Continental Congress were to be enforced was that the colonies were to create networks of local committees. This had the practical effect of helping massively accelerate the speed at which imperial control over the colonies melted away in exchange for those same local committees taking control. This was not at all unlike the process that we have already discussed, sweeping through Massachusetts, except now it was happening almost everywhere. The Congress, if you'll recall, in order to gain legitimacy, had local committees elected to enforce their orders. Pragmatically, this transferred the authority of the Congress from a macro to a micro level. These committees on paper were created to enforce what became known as the Association, which was the Agreement on Trade. The fact that local committees would be in charge of enforcement brought the problem of compliance away from a handful of delegates in Philadelphia to the individual town. This meant a few things. First, it gave that sought-after legitimacy to the acts. Now it was your neighbors, people who you lived amongst, that were enforcing the decree. It was far more difficult to ignore the people you live around than it is people making decisions hundreds of miles away. Second, using local committees for enforcement of the boycott meant that it was going to be far harder for people to fall through the cracks. Committees existed at the local level, meaning that people were very much always watching. Furthermore, when it came to enforcement, 
The primary weapon that these committees used was humiliation through the local papers. If somebody living in rural Virginia violated the boycott, their name was going to be published in the local paper. They would be branded an enemy to the country, right there in their hometown, for all their friends and neighbors to see. Thus, humiliation and public scorn proved to be wildly effective at ensuring people did not cross the committees. This power quickly extended to not just ensuring compliance with the boycott, but also went further and quashed all dissent. In Orange County, Virginia, for example, this included forcing a local resident to surrender pamphlets that were critical of the Congress. In this growing role, the committees became far more powerful in that they were now able to carefully control the narrative being presented. What was more unexpected is that these committees would soon do far more than enforce a boycott. By the end of 1774, these committees had taken on increasingly powerful roles within their colonies. Beyond helping to enforce the boycott, these committees quickly found themselves in charge of doing other things, such as helping regulate the militia and in the collection of arms. In some cases, specifically in Fairfax County where George Washington and George Mason were commanding the militia, the committee went so far as to levy attacks on the colonists to help buy military supplies. This was obviously a massive overstep of their intended authority. Nobody gave the committee any kind of power over the militia or taxation. However, in the current tumult, they simply slid into those roles. Practically, there was very little that anybody was going to be able to do to check the power of these committees that would not also send the colonies into open rebellion. Lord Dunmore was really stuck between a rock and a hard place here as well. The logical move for him to reassert his control over the government would have seemed to have been calling the Burgesses. However, by this point he knew that the Burgesses supported the association, and that had he called them, their first act would have been to approve of the Congress and those flourishing local committees that he was so eager to snuff out. Dunmore clearly could not have this, and subsequently refused to call the Burgesses to order. As a result, it opened up the room necessary for these local committees to step into the void and take over practical control of the government. Dunmore could do little more than shake his fist and scream into the void, as he had become practically powerless to stop the committees from doing as they pleased. Militias were clearly preparing for a conflict, and there was absolutely nothing that Lord Dunmore could do about it. By the end of the year, these committees had, according to Governor Dunmore, become the government of Virginia. Dartmouth had been clear in his instructions to the colonial governors. They needed to get their houses in order and prevent the spread of these local committees. Dunmore responded back to Dartmouth about his actual power to do anything in this situation. He explained that if the legitimate government still held any authority, it was now completely ignored by the colonists. The local committees had been established and had usurped the role of being the government of the colony. Dunmore could shout from the rooftops that the old government was still in power. However, that would not make it true. Finally, Dunmore warned Dartmouth of the truth of the matter. 
the local committees were supported by militia companies that were loyal to them and not to the royal government in the colony. Should he attempt to do anything and move against the committees as Dartmouth wished, he warned that it would lead to nothing but disappointment and disgrace. Similar events would sweep through most of the colonies. Maryland had followed in the direction of Virginia. In North Carolina, though the reaction was a bit cooler than in Virginia, they nonetheless formed their committees and followed the program of non-importation. South Carolina quickly adopted the association and slammed the door shut on imports. In Pennsylvania, there was some hesitation from the Quakers, who continued to preach for moderation. However, again, the proliferation of local committees occurred just the same. In Connecticut, there was likewise some pushback from pockets of Anglicans inside of the colony, though this was not enough to prevent local committees from forming and enforcing the boycott. As had been the case with Dunmore, more and more royal governors found themselves writing to Dartmouth to let him know just how dire the situation had become. Everywhere, the story was the same. Local committees were grabbing power away from the legitimate colonial governments, and there was virtually nothing that those governors could do to stop it. They indicated that there was widespread support for the committees and for the boycott. New Jersey Governor William Franklin wrote to Dartmouth that nobody dared go against the Congress, as doing so would make them the objects of resentment in the colony. Franklin concluded, that there was nothing that the actual governments could do to offer protection to those who spoke out against the boycott. Although there were those who did continue to write to Dartmouth about the state of affairs and the ongoing crisis in the colonies, those letters began to dry up quickly in early 1775. Joseph Reed, in Pennsylvania, had been sending Dartmouth information about the Congress in hopes that the letters would help keep lines of communication open. Reed was motivated by the hope of restoring peace and that normalization of relations between the crown and her colonies. However, by February 1775, even those communications were breaking down, as Reed appears to have realized that reconciliation was not coming. The colonists were not planning to back down. Resistance was continuing to grow. The local committees had rapidly gained power, and by their very nature of operating at the local level, they were able to both enforce the boycott, but also command the militia and snuff out dissent through a program of public humiliation and by ostracizing those who were critical of the Congress and the boycott. Despite the fact that the local committees attempted, often successfully, to quash dissenters to the Congress, they were not completely successful. We had talked about the Anglicans in Connecticut earlier, Although they ultimately would be overruled in their objections, pockets of dissent did remain. Georgia would prove to be one such place. The colony continued to be embroiled in Indian warfare, that same fighting that had made the colony decline the invitation to send a delegation to the Congress in the first place. Now, the colony's governor, James Wright, used these same pressures to prevent the colony from holding a Congress of their own. However, even there, all Wright really could do was delay the action. The Continental Congress had taken steps to ensure compliance from a potentially reluctant colony. The Congress had included a clause that stated that any non-participating colony would itself be boycotted 
just the same as Great Britain. There was never a broad acceptance for the association in Georgia. However, they could not risk that threat of isolation from the other colonies either. When they met in January 1775, they would, begrudgingly, accept the association. As they were going to now be part of the political process, whether they liked it or not, they did choose to send a single delegate to the Second Continental Congress that spring. The increase in violence during the final months of the year was a serious cause of concern for some. And for others, it was a welcome gift. There was real worry that some of the more radical actions of the local militias, such as those in Newport, New London, and down in Annapolis, would cause the Americans to divide amongst themselves and launch into a civil war against each other, rather than against the British. For the emerging American leadership, this was a concerning prospect. Just as they were beginning to gain some ground, internal dispute proved a significant risk to the growing movement. Likewise, among some British officials, there was some hope that should the Americans turn on each other, it would help to lift some of the weight off of the imperial officials. To wrap up for today, I want to return to Massachusetts where, when we last left off, Governor Thomas Gage found himself quickly losing control over the colonial government, as more and more power fell into the hands of the individual towns. Though originally beginning in central Massachusetts, this movement had quickly expanded to the entire Bay Colony. In the western half of the colony, a handful of men had long dominated politics. Known as the River Gods, these families had long run the show in western Massachusetts, holding an iron grip upon the local politics. These so-called River Gods tell us a lot about the evolving situation in the West. Throughout the entire imperial crisis, they had managed to keep the western half of the colony out of the tumults that had dominated in and around Boston. They maintained their control, largely because all the important offices in this part of the colony were held either by their relatives or by those whom they knew to be unquestionably loyal. They controlled all aspects of local politics, and that was the way that they liked it. When the imperial crisis came, these men saw it as being a threat to the order that they had so carefully cultivated. The problem, however, for these men is that, though they were politically in control, the local population generally hated their guts. They had long grown tired of having to try to appease their overlords, and now, despite their previous hold on power, all old leadership suddenly found itself extremely vulnerable. Just as they had done throughout the rest of the colony, the colonists would shut down the local court systems. Local mob action managed to convince those amongst the Western leadership, often with threats of violence, that joining the governor's council was probably not going to end well for them. In very short order, any power that these river gods had once had became little more than an illusion. Any council member who had not already fled to Boston was forced to resign. When we talk about the American Revolution as being a bottom-up struggle, this goes directly to that point. The population of these western counties had long lived under the stranglehold of these river gods. However, in just a few months' time, 
they had managed to completely remove them from power. Although this did include some level of threats of violence being handed out at the end of a musket, much of the change came through the local population, simply delegitimizing the previously existing systems. Men like Thomas Gage in Massachusetts and Lord Dunmore Dan in Virginia could still claim that they were in charge of the legitimate government. However, they were both very well aware of just how far their actual influence now extended. In a place like Western Massachusetts, where animosity had been building for decades, the unfolding crisis presented colonists with the opportunity to simply bypass those old systems through the introduction of new forms of local rule. In the case of the river gods, yes, they were living locally. However, the enemies that they had made over the years made them easy to just cut out of the equation. By the end of 1774, Thomas Gage found himself ruling over a rump of the old government, with virtually no meaningful authority outside of Boston proper. Boston, somewhat ironically, had become something of an outlier in Massachusetts. That fall, it had morphed into something somewhere between a fort and a prison. The process had begun back in September, when Gage decided that he needed to secure the Boston Neck, the small strip of land that connected Boston to the Massachusetts mainland. Now, this would be a good time to mention that since 1774, Boston has seen a considerable amount of landfill. The Neck at that time, however, would have been the only land-based entry into the city, thus marking a critical position to be defended. Today, the Neck would be located in the area that has since become the South End. As the arms race began to accelerate that September, Gage took the guns that had historically been pointed out towards the Atlantic, the ones used to protect against foreign invasions, and spun them around. The cannons were now pointing not out to sea, but rather towards the towns south of Boston. Gage assured the people that this was being done for everybody's protection, though it goes without saying that the Americans certainly had their doubts at such an obviously provocative gesture. By the end of the year, Boston was about the only thing that Gage was in control of. As Boston itself became increasingly inhabited by loyalists, there were suggestions being made that it was approaching time to evacuate the civilian population as anticipation of an attack on the British population grew. In October, a provincial congress in Massachusetts would meet. Much as would be the case a few months later in Virginia, Gage was stuck. He could not call the legislature, because if he did, there was a very real risk that they would just go ahead and legitimize the provincial congress. However, by not calling the assembly, Gage limited both his ability to easily respond to the crisis, while at the same time losing legitimacy in his government as it was rendered essentially non-functional. The Congress immediately voted to supply money for weapons and ammunition, money that was to be collected through taxes that normally had gone to the actual government, but now would be redirected. Committees of public safety were formed, and evidence suggested that some delegates may have favored a first-strike mentality. There were arguments during the Congress that Boston should be evacuated, and then destroyed with the hold-up British stuck inside. Although this would not come to pass, it goes directly towards the far more aggressive stance Massachusetts was taking throughout the fall of 1774. 
Following a recess of several weeks, the Congress again met at the end of November. Here again, we see a hardline approach, as complaints over the association agreed to in Philadelphia rankled some of the more rural delegates. The problem was not that the boycott was overly burdensome or broad, but rather that it did not go far enough. Specifically at issue was the question of goods that were in the colony and had been prior to the boycott taking effect on December 1st. Here, there existed a discrepancy between the rural and the urban colonists. In more urban areas, there was, naturally, going to be a much larger amount of goods that had been imported from Britain prior to the implementation of the December 1st deadline. With British goods now limited as a result, there was a situation ripe for local merchants to enjoy a little old-fashioned profiteering. Out in the more rural areas, there would be far fewer amounts of imported goods, and therefore, they had far fewer scruples on a ban. This likewise gave the rural farmers a meaningful way to check the power of the city, an opportunity that they did not want to miss. Eventually, an agreement on the matter was reached that no British goods, regardless of their status of being imported legally or not, could be sold following an October 10, 1775 deadline. As 1774 drew to an end, as did the Provincial Congress, the question largely fell to preparations for war. Samuel Adams argued in favor of a widespread preparation throughout all of Massachusetts. Adams was not wanting to delay any more either. In his mind, the die was cast. War was coming, and he wanted to be sure that he stood on the right side of it. Adams requested that 20,000 troops be raised and an offensive be launched against the British, who remained essentially trapped inside of Boston. The problem was, though everybody seemed to be in general agreement that a war was pretty much inevitable, not everybody was in agreement on wanting to launch an attack on the British. Merchant Thomas Cushing argued that such an attack would alienate the rest of the colonies and would leave Massachusetts fighting a war isolated from the much-needed support from those other colonies. Ultimately, Thomas Cushing's won out, based on his argument that back in September, the Congress had told Massachusetts to tread carefully, and raising an army was the opposite of treading carefully. One of the final acts of the Congress before it adjourned for the new year was a failed attempt to revive the council and elect a new governor. Now, of course, the ramification of this would have been to essentially completely ignore that Thomas Gage had any authority and outright reject imperial leadership in Massachusetts. We can argue that this had actually already happened, but many thought that this was one step too far. Letters from the other colonies came in, largely penned by moderates like John Dickinson, which expressed considerable concern over the idea. Cushing responded to these letters and assured everybody that the plan had failed. No governor had been elected. However, the fact alone that the plan had even existed was a worrisome development for some. The fall of 1774 brought what was the most dramatic action that we have seen thus far. Throughout the colonies, the local committees that had been formed to enforce the boycott quickly gobbled up ever-increasing amounts of authority. They were raising and training militias, and in some instances, they had begun collecting taxes to cover the costs of arms and ammunition. In both Virginia and Massachusetts, by the end of the year, both Dunmore and Gage had admitted 
that they no longer had control over their governments. These local committees, as they assumed many of the governmental functions, would help bring the independence movement out of just the big cities and into the more rural areas. In places like western Massachusetts, this afforded colonists the opportunity to overthrow entrenched local leadership who had been siding with the loyalists. These local committees would likewise prove quite good at quashing any and all dissent to the Continental Congress's orders. Of course, everything that we have talked about today is very one-sided. We are viewing everything from the point of view of the colonists and those colonial officials in America. We have yet to see just how Great Britain was going to respond to everything that had taken place during the final months of 1774. Next time, we are going to have our final episode on the Imperial Crisis. America had spent the final part of 1774 declaring de facto independence from Great Britain. It is now time for the British to respond and figure out if there was any way to turn the tide and regain control over their wayward colonies. We will pick up right where we left off today at the beginning of 1775 as everybody hurdles towards that looming precipice that is now just mere months away. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as everybody approaches the point of no return.